Heavenly Father, Father, could we thank you enough for what you did with your son on the cross on that Easter so long ago? We can't thank you for the new birth we have in Christ any more than we can thank our parents for the physical birth that we received from them. And yet, Father, we know that we owe you so much, more than we can repay. And so we thank you, Father, for the memorial the memory of Christ and his sacrifice. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity it gave us, and we thank you, Father, for the word before us that teaches us concerning these things. I pray, Father, you would give each heart in this room a conscious awareness that they are not here by accident today, that though they chose the day they would arrive, they picked the time, they decided to attend. You, Father, in your eternal plan, placed them in this this room for a reason, and I pray, Father, that hearts would be stirred to consider what your purpose may have been in bringing us all here this morning to hear your word. I pray the Spirit would give us that clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who may be visiting, friends, family, and and the like, you may not realize that this is a church that teaches through the Bible, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. So we've been in 1 Corinthians now for some time. And as it would turn out, in the course of that teaching, we happen to land today at the very beginning of chapter 15, of 1 Corinthians. Now, why is that significant? Well, as you're going to see, the beginning of this chapter is all about Easter. It's the discussion of the resurrection. You know, there are a lot of ways we could approach the teaching of the resurrection. I'm sure there's plenty of sermons going on this Sunday from various perspectives, but I can think of nothing better than what the Word itself teaches concerning this matter. And of all the passages I might take us to on a morning like this to discuss the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this part of 1 Corinthians would be near the top of my list in any case. The wisdom of God on display through the weakness of men like me who would not have planned it better if he had tried. And yet God has brought us to this point. The topic this morning is the topic of resurrection. There was an employee of a company who was working at his desk one morning and his boss stopped by his cubicle to ask him a question. Out of the blue, the boss just asks, do you believe in resurrection? Now, that question stunned this guy working at this office because the boss had never shown any interest in past years about his Christian faith or anything to do with religion. And it was very unexpected to hear this kind of a question coming from your boss in the middle of your workday. And as he's contemplating his answer, he's thinking, this is my chance. This is my opportunity to witness to a man I've always wanted to influence. And so he answered enthusiastically, why, yes, I do believe in resurrection. And the boss got his big smile on his face and he said, oh, wonderful, that, that explains everything, thanks. And that was a confusing response. And so the young man was a bit puzzled and he asked his boss, I'm not sure I understand, what does it explain? And the boss answered, well, when you were out of the office last Friday attending your grandmother's funeral, she stopped by to say hello to you. Well, that's that's a cute joke, of course, but it's no exaggeration for me to say that the entire Christian faith, in fact, everything that the Bible teaches concerning Jesus Christ, everything that we know about our faith hinges on the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, if it never really happened, then the entire Christian faith is meaningless It never mattered. It's a fraud. It would mean Jesus is still in the grave, just like any other man. It would mean that his claims to being God and to having the power to overcome death were lies. It would mean that we have no reason to trust in him for our own salvation from death if he didn't rise from the grave. Now, on the other hand, if the resurrection is true, 
If it happened as the New Testament authors testify, well, then that changes everything. It means that Jesus' claims to being the truth and the life are trustworthy. It means that he and he alone has the power of life over death. It would mean that we have reason to place our trust in him to raise us from the dead when that day comes, knowing we will not be disappointed. Everything hinges on whether the resurrection is true or not. Now, at this point in Paul's letter in chapter 15, we reach the final topic of these series of topics Paul's been addressing in this letter as he wrote to this church in Corinth. As you remember, each topic that Paul has addressed so far in this letter came as a result of something he was told by a delegation from the city led by someone called Chloe. And when that delegation arrived, they reported to Paul that there were numerous things going on in the church back in Corinth that should trouble him. And as he heard of all of the things happening, he determined to write a letter back to the church explaining to them how they should be corrected in their thinking and in their behavior on each of these topics. And so far in this letter, we've seen him address the topics of idols and marriage and spiritual gifts and the Lord's Supper. And now, as we get to this point in the letter, he reaches his final topic, and that is the topic of resurrection. And in each case, Paul begins new topics by going into a period of teaching, explaining what is true, what is correct. And then before it's over, he moves from teaching into correction, telling the church how they need to change what they think and do in order to bring it into alignment with the truth. So now Paul begins on a teaching of resurrection. Look with me in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read verses 1 and 2 to start the topic. Paul says, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul begins this topic in a curious manner. Did you notice he says, I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. And then he calls his audience brethren. That's a term that we use to refer to other Christians, other believers. And so in all that Paul's saying here at the beginning, he's implying that they heard the gospel. They believe the gospel. They have been brought to salvation through that message. They are Christians. So then he says something very odd. He says, now I need to preach you the gospel again. Why would he need to do that? If it is true that they've heard it and they have believed it, the answer, friends, is because Christians need to be reminded of the true gospel. It's one reason why we honor the day of Christ's resurrection once a year in the case of Easter. It's why pastors repeat the gospel from time to time from the pulpit on many Sundays while they preach to an audience that is or so they would expect to be Christian. It's not because we hope merely to persuade that one or two newcomers who wander into church on an occasional Sunday and maybe don't know the Lord. Yes, that's part of it, certainly. But it's also because those of us who have believed in the gospel need the reminder of what the gospel is and what it teaches. If you pay attention to religious news articles, particularly online, I do a lot of this myself. I read online blogs or I read news sites of one kind or another. And as you find your way around the Internet reading those things, you're going to quickly realize that many people have no clue what the gospel is, though they talk about it like they do. Have you noticed that? 
In fact, I find it interesting many Christians really don't know what the word gospel means. And I don't mean the definition of it. I think most of us know it's defined as good news, right? It means good news in Greek. Most of us have heard that. But the point is, we don't know what's good. What is the news? You'd be surprised how many don't know that. If you want to entertain yourself sometime, conduct a little experiment. I want you to go do one of those man-on-the-street interviews. Go in front of like a... A mall or a Walmart or better yet, get in front of a church as it's getting out from Sunday service and do a little man on the street interview with these people. Ask them, what is the gospel? You will get some very interesting answers. I've encountered Christians who think the word gospel is simply a synonym for the New Testament. They think it means the book or part of the book. Others think it's a synonym for Jesus Christ himself. He is the gospel. Some think it means treating other people nicely. Have you encountered that one? I have family members who think that's what the word gospel means. Being nice to other people, the golden rule, is the gospel. Others say it's a call to equality, social justice, equal opportunity, achieving happiness. Some think it's equated with wealth. Having wealth is the gospel. Some think it's about everything except what it's actually about. I read a religious article this weekend written by a so-called Christian who treated the term gospel as if the word had no definition at all. It was the most confusing thing. They viewed the gospel, the word, as some mysterious, ambiguous concept without any specific form. Something you can't actually relate to. You just talk about in ethereal terms. The gospel. All this confusion is exactly why we return to the Bible And we repeatedly find the gospel and preach the gospel on a regular basis, both to those who don't know it and to those of us who do know it. Otherwise, every believer sooner or later is susceptible to becoming confused about what they actually have been saved by. And as we lose an understanding of that, we lose the understanding of what it means to be Christian. And then, friends, we have no hope to understand theology properly or to understand what our faith requires in our life. And we're ripe for deceptions and the schemes of the enemy. So what Paul does as he begins this topic, in effect, is say this to the church. He says, I need to reteach you the gospel that you received from me before, that you received in faith, the one that you stand in, the one that saved you. When Paul says the gospel you stand in, this is what he means. You can take out the word stand. You can put in the word withstand. He means it is the thing that will cause you to withstand the judgment that is coming upon all men and women. All men and women are going to stand for judgment by a holy and righteous judge who will call us to account Either you're going to be prepared to enter into that moment and in that sense you can stand it or you won't. You'll enter with no prospect to survive God's wrath. That's why in verse 2 Paul says, the message he delivered is the one that saves them. And what he means, of course, is saves them from that judgment, from the penalty that God assesses for sin. The world is filled with men preaching false Gospels, gospels that are false messages of salvation, religions that claim that you can earn your way out of the debt you have before God, earn your way above hell and back into heaven, that there is no hell and therefore there is no worry. And that if you are nice enough, God will do something nice for you. 
And there's even distorted versions of Christianity that you may have encountered. Some of these people come to your door and try to tell you that what they have is the truth. They've changed the gospel because of the deceived hearts of those who have misled them. And they come pretending to be someone they are not. But at the end of everything they say, if you listen carefully, it's always back to works. The deceived heart believes we can do something to make God happy with us. But only one gospel has the power to save men on the day of that judgment, Paul says. Notice at the end of verse 2, Paul adds that provocative statement. He says, you are saved by the message I delivered if you are holding fast to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, we can clearly see why Paul thinks he has to repeat the gospel to this church. Chloe's report to Paul must have included some discussion of a disturbing case in the church where there were some who apparently were professing belief now in a different gospel than the one Paul brought them in the beginning. And as they have moved to this new gospel, and it's no gospel at all, of course, this false teaching, and Chloe tells Paul about this, Paul recognizes, I don't know that everyone got it the first time. Rather than holding to the truth that Paul delivered, these people are now claiming to be saved some other way. A message the enemy had introduced through some kind of false teaching that must have infiltrated the church. Some have been carried away by this false message of what the gospel is when it's not actually what it is. And so naturally, Paul's concerned these people were never believers in the first place. They heard Paul deliver the true gospel. They professed some kind of acceptance of it. But when a more appealing alternative came along... These people ran after the new message with the same gusto that they had appeared to embrace Paul's message. Paul says, you know, if that's you, if anyone can come along with another way to get to heaven and you're equally interested in that other way, you're only proving you never understood the gospel to begin with. Because the nature of the true gospel is mutually exclusive. It declares as a part of what it claims that there is no other way. If you believe in the real one, you have already agreed that every other option is false. So that if another option shows up and you find it appealing, you're only demonstrating that you never understood the first one. They had believed in vain, Paul says. The word vain in Greek, literally translated, means to fail or to be empty. To fail to believe, to be empty of true acceptance. That's precisely the danger for any group of Christians who set the gospel aside after hearing it once and assume once is enough. Friends, the message of the gospel never gets old. It never loses its importance. It never loses its relevance. Repeating the true gospel is just as important for the person who has been saved as it is for the one who has believed in vain. We all need to be rock solid on the message that brings forgiveness. Friends, salvation is not like a game of horseshoes. You don't get points for getting close to the gospel. You don't get into heaven because you went to church. You know, friends, if that were enough, then the 20 years I spent being dragged into a Catholic mass by my mother would have been more than enough to cover me for my entire life. You don't end up in heaven because you're married to a Christian. You don't end up in heaven because your parents were a Christian. You don't get a pass into heaven because you're mostly a good person. There is too much at stake for anyone, whether they are Christian or not, to misunderstand 
The gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. So, you want to know what the true gospel is? I mean, I've talked about it long enough. Maybe it's time we actually discuss what it is. Do you want to be sure that you believed in the right way for the right thing? You want to be confident you have not believed in vain? I hope so, and so does Paul. Because now Paul presents in his next passage the true one and only way that saves men from hell and assures us entrance in heaven. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Were you expecting more? Had you thought maybe it would be a longer discussion than that? Friends, there it is. That's it. That's the true gospel. No more, no less. This isn't the only place you can find it in the Bible. In fact, it's written in one form or another on virtually every page of the Bible. I'm fond of saying that if you open your Bible and flip it to a page and point to the page, I'll show you Christ on that page. The gospel is everywhere. But in these two verses, Paul succinctly captures the one and only message that saves men's souls. Let's take a look at it. Verse 3, Paul says, this is the message he delivered in the past. And this is the message of first importance. Friends, there is no other topic or discussion that matters concerning religion unless and until the gospel is settled in someone's heart. If someone wants to entertain themselves with religious conversation with you because you're a Christian and they find it fascinating to engage Christians with a conversation about the Bible or religion or heaven or whatever might fascinate them, there are an infinite number of things they could probably drum up that we could talk about. We can talk about myths. We can talk about controversies. We can talk about denominational differences. We can talk about traditions and all the rest. We can do that all day long. But Paul says the gospel is of first importance. Now, he doesn't say it's of highest importance. I want you to notice that he picks his words carefully here. He says it's of first importance. What he means is, friends, we have nothing else to talk about on the subject of religion with an unbeliever until we agree on the gospel. Unbelievers will often show an interest in religion and they often like to engage in the topic as a form of entertainment, but that is a useless conversation except as it applies to the gospel itself. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with unbelievers who have this kind of open willingness to talk about religion. And their favorite topics, by the way, are the kind you could probably predict. What do you think an unbeliever would love to talk about with a Christian? How about evolution? That's a great one. That comes up all the time. Genesis versus science. Or the accuracy of the Bible. How do we know it's truly what it says? How do we know that it was written by who it was said to be written by? How do we know it hasn't changed 50 times between now and when it was written? The accuracy of the text. Or they want to talk about the errors of past Catholic popes. Or they want to talk about the Inquisition. Or they want to talk about church scandals that are in the news today. Who's the latest pastor who's run off with his secretary or whatever is in the news. Ask them, though, to consider the truth of Jesus' claims. Ask them to consider the gospel. And all of a sudden, the conversation ends. All of a sudden, all of that interest dries up. And they're done. Have you ever noticed that? I've had that conversation more times than I wish. 
We need to take note of Paul's example here. As soon as he became aware that some in this church may not have understood the gospel, they may have believed in vain, what does he do? He returns to the message of first importance. Back to square one. Even if it were possible, we could take an unbeliever, enter into a conversation with them, and in our good intentions, we say, you know, I won't throw the gospel at them right away. I don't want to reject that too quickly. I want to butter them up a little bit. So we'll talk about other stuff for a while first. Even if that were possible, if they never get to the point of understanding the gospel, friends, all you've done is dress them up, put lipstick on a pig, and sent them away as an unbeliever. What good did that do? Friends, you don't have to butter anybody up. Do you know who butters somebody up to get them to believe in the gospel? It's not you. It's the Spirit of God. Does He need your help? He just wants you to be involved for your own blessing. He asks for your obedience to the process. But you don't have to get smart about it. Go to the article of first importance. Who is Christ? How do you get to heaven? Preach the gospel and nothing more until it's received. You remember earlier in this letter, Paul said that when he arrived in Corinth to start this church, he said he was determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. He came with nothing more than that, which was enough. And Paul from there proceeds to explain the fundamental elements of the gospel message. Friends, I know we all have in our hearts the the thought of what the gospel is, and I'm sure most of us could explain who Jesus is if we were talking to an unbeliever. At least I hope so. But don't overestimate your knowledge of the one and only gospel. Let's take note here of the elements of it. Let's be careful to understand it as it's constructed. And it begins, Paul says, with Christ dying for our sins according to the Scripture. Friends, the story of the gospel begins with your sin. The story of the gospel begins with sin. Men have sin. Women have sin. We all have sin. And let's be honest, lots of it. More than we'd like to admit. Years ago, when I was a new believer, I had a friend at the time who was an unbeliever. And in those early days of walking with Christ, I wanted to share my faith with my friend. I felt that early glow that we all have when we come to faith, right? We're all excited about it. We have this friend who doesn't know it yet. And you think, hey, here's a guy who needs to hear the truth. I can remember sitting in our garage one night. This is in Colorado. So if you wanted to be outside to smoke a cigar, which is what we were doing at the time. Hope that doesn't shock anybody in here. But and it's cold. You can't be in the house because you're married. And. You have to sit outside, so yeah, it's cold, so you kind of compromise, you sit in the garage. None of that was really pertinent, but I thought it was sort of a nice detail. So we're sitting in the garage, and I begin the conversation, and I begin to testify about belief in Jesus Christ, and I say, this is the only way that you can be saved from the penalty of your sin. And you know what he said next? He said something I totally did not expect. He said, I don't believe in sin. That stopped me in my tracks. I mean, if you don't understand your own sin before God, there's nowhere to go with the conversation at that point. You're dead at step one. The gospel message, friends, is fundamentally a message of how God forgives us for our sin. But if you don't even understand you have sin, you're not looking for a solution. If you don't appreciate that the standard for fellowship with God, to be in his presence, to live with him eternally, to be welcomed into heaven. If you don't understand the standard is perfection, then you will go to your grave deceived. It's not mostly good. It's not good except for that one time. It is literally perfection. From your first breath 
to your last breath, you can have no sin ever once. And guess who gets to define what a sin is in answer to my friend's question? The word of God. Do all that it requires perfectly forever and you're sinless. But you and I both know we haven't done that. God knows we have not done that. And if we have not done that, then we have a problem. Paul says in Romans 3, 9, are we better than they speaking to the Jews? He says, are we better than they? He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek, both those who are of Israel and all the rest of the world are under sin. And then Paul quotes from the Bible in in Psalms. He says in Romans 3, 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. If you're sitting here right now saying, well, that's fine and dandy for him, but I know I don't have sin. John says in his first letter that the one who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Romans 3.23, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why do you think there are so many false gospels? Do you know why? It's because of this problem more than any other. It is because we need an alternative to consider the reality of our sin. I think it's because the last thing a hard, unbelieving heart wants to hear is that they are sinners and that God will hold them to account. The true gospel, though, begins with this accusation that you and I are in trouble before God. The choices we've made, the lifestyle we've lived, the words that we've spoken, even the thoughts that have rattled around in our head offend a holy God, and he will call us to account for them one day, and you will not escape that moment. None of us will. That is a debt that the Bible says only our eternal death will pay. There are some who walk around saying, well, if I do enough good things, I'll erase that sin. Friends, it does not work that way. It does not work that way. I don't care how many good things you do from this moment forward. It won't change the past. And that debt that you have before God remains there until it's paid by the only method God has appointed. And that method is a death, an eternal death. Now, that's not the message that an unbelieving heart wants to hear, is it? But you know that even believers don't like to hear that sometimes. Even the believer rebels just a little in their fleshly heart at the thought that we have sin and that God takes note of it. Many a Christian have become self-righteous or even self-indulgent and licentious in their lives because they forget why Christ died for them in the first place. Sin is the problem Christ came to solve. He didn't come to teach us good lessons about how to live. He didn't come to show us a way. He wasn't here just because he's a good teacher and he didn't come to model what good behavior looks like. If that's all God needed to do, he had the prophets who could have done that for him. He came to solve the problem of our sin and he came to do it the only way it can be done. Don't let someone fool you, by the way, with that phrase that we hear so often. There are many ways to heaven. No, there are not. There are many ways to hell. There's only one way to heaven, according to Scripture. The way God alone appointed. The Father determined the acceptable payment for your sin. And he foretold it through the prophets. That's why Paul said Christ came to die for your sin according to. To the scriptures, don't let that point escape your notice. Paul is saying God prescribed his appointed manner for how he will be satisfied for your sin. He prescribed it. You don't get to define your own or choose your own way. 
Where did we find that? Well, in many places. Let me just give you one example in Isaiah. One of the prophets, Isaiah, wrote this in 53, verses 1 and on, where he says, Who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Isaiah says there was a death of a certain man. We know Jesus of Nazareth, the man that Scripture said would come for our sake. That man was a common man. Isaiah says he was unremarkable. If you had seen Jesus in the flesh when he walked the earth the first time, you might have even thought he was a little ugly, according to Scripture. He was despised. He was forsaken. But Isaiah said, this is the one God chose to put your sin on should you accept his payment. And with that appointing of your sin onto him, he could pay the price for it when he died on the cross. He was afflicted so that you could be healed. Now, you need to understand that what Paul's saying is that you cannot pick your own manner of resolution. No self-appointed savior can save you from your sin. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not the Dalai Lama, not David Koresh, not Joseph Smith, not Charles Russell. No one else can come along and say, you know what? I'm the guy that can save you from your sin. Because Paul says the scriptures appointed only one man with the right to do that. Only one man who God would accept as payment. So we either take the one he appointed or we get no second chance because we don't get to determine it on our own. That's what Paul is saying. No other crackpot, con man, false prophet, cult leader, someone with a Messiah complex can do the job. There's only one. Whether by his life or by his death, there is no one who can solve the problem. But God has appointed one for that purpose. God alone determined the propitiation for our sin. So the beginning of the gospel message is our sin being a barrier to our ability to be in heaven and God making a remedy for it. The story begins with sin, but it doesn't end there. Paul says that Jesus was buried as a consequence of his death in our place and then raised three days later. Now, there's nothing remarkable about a dead man being buried, right? You, you think, well, that's not a very important part of the story, really. No, it is, friends. It is. Paul repeats this part of the story because it's essential to understanding what sin requires. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. What do you get when you work? You get wages. Right? You get wages. Have you ever considered that your sin is a kind of work? From this perspective, as you go about your daily life, living according to what you want to do, you sin. You offend God. You don't even realize it half the time. God owes you something for that work. And he says what he owes you is the death that sin requires. So as we earn death day after day after day, 
we're getting that much closer to the payment date. And yet, Paul says, Christ died. Now, Scripture says he was without sin. He had no debt of his own. So when he died, he was assuming our debt for him. Why is the death such an important piece of the story? Because if Christ never died, your debt has never been paid. In the early church, there were false teachers who infiltrated and began to teach falsely concerning Christ. And they reported to the early church that Jesus had not actually died. The Gnostics were commonly seen doing this. You see the writers of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude. These letters were all written principally to deal with the concerns of men who had come to say Jesus didn't really die. Some said he never really had a physical body. It was just the appearance of God in a physical body. Why do you think those writers worked so hard to contend with that false teaching? Friends, because the enemy who had sowed that false teaching knew that if he could cause us to doubt the death, the physical reality of Jesus' death, then he is beginning to take the core of the gospel away. Because without a death, then you need to die for your own sin. I need to die for mine. The true gospel says Jesus was man and Jesus died. His heart stopped. He stopped breathing. His body got cold and he was put in a tomb, just like everybody else who's dead. I was reading again some crazy stuff this weekend. There were those who claimed Jesus swooned on the cross. You know what that word means? Pretended to die. And that when no one was looking, his disciples pull him off the cross and shuffle him into a little tomb where he can sit there for a couple of days, hold up, making everyone think he's dead. And then at the end of it all, they sneak him back out and then claim, oh, he rose from the dead. A big conspiracy. That's what some are saying. That's what some have always said. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says Jesus truly died because that's what was required to pay for your sin. And if Jesus died for your sin, you don't have to. That brings us to the final element of the true gospel. Paul says Jesus rose from the dead. In a word, resurrected. Resurrected. Friends, resurrection is a very specific word. It has a very technical meaning. Remember the cartoons on Saturday morning? I do. And there was always that scene where, I don't know if it was the coyote, or it was Tom and Jerry, or it was someone else in one of those cartoons. They, they die, right? They fall off a bridge. A giant rock falls on them. The TNT blows up next to them, right? And as the, the dead body is laying on the ground, you see the little ghost of the character rise up off the body. Some think that's what resurrection is. I've heard some think that the word means your spirit rising to heaven after your body is dead. Friends, that's not what the word means. That is not resurrection. Resurrection means that dead body coming back to life. It's talking about the body. The resurrection is you getting a new body again. Jesus' body came back to life. He started to breathe again. He got warm again. He sat up. He stood up. He walked out, not because someone gave him CPR. He was dead for three days to make sure none of us would be sitting around later questioning whether he truly died. And then he came back to life just as surely as he was dead. Now he's alive again. The true gospel is the good news that your death does not have to be the end of you. Think about how much of your life considers the fact that you will die. How much of your finances are driven by that thought? How much of your health choices are driven by that thought? How much of your psyche is contemplating your death or the death of others you love? 
Do you see how how powerful death is in our experience? And yet the Bible says that doesn't have to be the end. You can have your body back in a new and better form. You can be walking again on this earth a second time, never to die again, just as Jesus will never die again either. Do you want that? That's not fantasy. That's not special effects. That's not Hollywood. That is actually what happens. And how do we know that? Because it happened to Jesus Christ. The promise of the gospel, friends, is that everyone who places their trust for salvation in Jesus Christ is assured that they, too, will have a new body that lives forever on this earth. So when it comes to choosing your savior, the one that you're going to depend on for your salvation, the one you're going to the grave with, confident they'll save you after it's all over. You had better pick that person carefully. Think about what's on the line. You think it's Muhammad? You think it's Buddha? You think it's Confucius? You think it's some other new one that's come down the road, some new agey thing that's now popular? You think that's who it is that's going to save you? You think it's your own good works that's going to save you? Friends, you better be right. Because by the time you find out, it's too late. How's this for a test? How about you place your trust for the resurrection of your body in the person who did it to themselves first? Isn't that a good test? You ever had someone come to your door and try to sell you something? Wouldn't you like them to prove their claims before you pay them what they want, right? Isn't that just sound consumer thinking? Well, here's an opportunity. Before someone says they can save you from death, why don't you ask them to die and come back to life? When they can do that, there's somebody you can trust. Do you know there's only been one person who's ever done that? You can go visit Buddha's grave. You can visit Muhammad's tomb. I'm not recommending it, but you can. Those men did not come back to life. Whatever they pretended to know about God and religion and what comes after death, whatever they thought they knew... What they couldn't do was conquer it. Confucius, David Koresh, all those other people I mentioned, they're still in the grave, except Jesus Christ. When he rose from the dead, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has power over life and death. He validated his claims concerning himself. Talk, friends, is cheap. Anyone can make claims about their power and their authority while they're still alive and walking on this earth. But let them die and come back to life and then we'll see who they really are. The true gospel, friends, the true good news is the story of the Son of God dying and resurrecting for our sake. That's the one Paul delivered. It's the same one Paul wrote in his letters. It is the same message Paul delivered when he was present in Corinth. And friends, it is the message of first importance that I preach to you this morning on Easter. Some of you may be drifting off. Some of you may be tired and ready to leave. Some of you may have other things on your mind. But give me two minutes. I would like your attention for two minutes. Friends, I don't know what God's got planned for you. I don't know if I'll see any of you again. You don't know where you're going to be tomorrow. You have plans. But are they God's plans? And friends... The issue of where you will be when you die is more important than anything you're thinking about between now and that day. And if you aren't confident that you will be risen into a body that can live with God in perfection, then you ought to be focused only on that message. It is the message of first importance. If you've heard it a thousand times, friend, you're going to hear it once more. And may I suggest that you accept and believe what is self-evidently true. Because you may not get a thousand and two times. Now, why do I care? 
I mean, I have my salvation by my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to be there. What difference does it make to me where you are? Because, friends, the only reason any of us are still here, having believed in the gospel, is to be the ambassador that Christ asked us to be. That he would make an appeal through me for your sake right now. And that's his choice, to use my mouth. Not because I have the right words, but because he uses weak things to show you what he can do in your body. The Father, in his mercy and in his love for you, appointed his Son to stand in your place because your sin prevents you from ever being in God's place. He went to a cross. He died because your sin required that penalty. He stayed dead to prove to you that this is not a sham. Someone didn't make this up. This hasn't been written so that we can play a big fraud on the whole world. And then, as he promised to do three days later, he brought himself back to life so that you would have all the proof you need to know that if you trust in him to do that for you, he has the power. You will not be disappointed. Now, what do you have to do? What do we have to do to to actually accept what he's just offered to us? It's as simple as it can be. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Friends, on the authority of scripture, I ask you to accept the truth of this testimony. Those of you who have believed, may it not have been in vain. And for those of you who have resisted the truth of this message, you're here for a reason. It's not a coincidence. It's not because Easter requires it. It's because the God of heaven has opened the door for you today and he's put this message in your lap and he's asking you to humble yourself and to put the pride that's kept you from agreeing behind you and say, I accept what I now know to be true and he will save you. He has the power to do that. And you will not be disappointed. I'm going to end with a prayer. You don't need to make any special vow. You don't need to come up here and do some special thing. If what I said is true in your heart, you know it to be true, then pray with me that God would show himself to you so that you would leave this room confident in the salvation that he gives by faith. And then we will go into a time of communion to end our service. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Father, your gospel is so simple, and yet so many have tried to make it what it is not. But your word, Father, will never go away. And your word stands in front of us this morning with this message of love and mercy. A message that begins with our sin, but ends with a resurrected Lord. I pray, Father, that you would convince, convict, and, and persuade any heart in this room that has heard these words, perhaps in the past, but has always stubbornly resisted the truth of what they, of what they say. And by your power, you would cause a heart to be humbled, a face to turn from sin and toward you, and for an acceptance to be voiced to someone in this room today, that the confession you require takes place, and that the belief that you request would take hold in the heart. By your Spirit, Lord, we ask these things to take place so that your kingdom would receive yet one more this morning. We thank you that Easter might be the chance when that day could happen, that someone may have the testimony from this room that it was on Easter that they came to know Jesus as Lord. 
Father, thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church and for the chance to speak your truth into a world that dearly needs to hear it. I pray, Lord, you'd continue to give us that opportunity up until the day that the Lord returns for his church. May we be light to this earth, salt, Father, and truth. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us the word of God to convict us and show us these things while we wait. Bring us back next week. Add to our numbers as you see fit. And come back quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.